But it's convenient that people who were essentially on the enemies list of the mayor and the police chief were the ones who were searched, and the people who weren't were not searched. All right, all right, all right. I'm Joe Turner, and this is City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. And I'm uh, with Eric Meyer today. He is the publisher and co-owner of the Marion County Record in Marion County, Kansas. They have become international news as a result of a raid on their newspaper and their offices and his home by the Marion City Police Department, as well as the Marion County Sheriff's Department. And so, Eric, uh, welcome to the show. I'm really excited about this conversation we're going to have. Thanks. Appreciate it. Before we get going, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, acknowledge the passing of your mother. Uh, Your mother's 98 years old. Uh, She passed away literally the day after this raid. My condolences to you and your family. I mean, that must be a tough thing to go through, obviously. Yeah, particularly because it was so obvious that it was brought on by the stress of this raid because her house was raided and she was very frustrated with it. I imagine some people who are listening to this have seen video of it. Uh, She was very, very, very upset about this and, and wouldn't eat, wouldn't sleep and literally died talking to me uh, the next day. I did see the uh, the video, the home video that you had where she was really angry and aggravated about them uh, invading her home and, and obviously invading her privacy and what have you on this situation. But again, condolences to you, sir. Thank you. So before we get into the nitty gritty of all this, uh, Eric, there's been a few things I've seen online that have been a little bit concerning to me. And I grew up in Southern California. I'm a California native. And there is an element of this being small town Kansas. And so even some of the supporters of the newspaper have sort of taken this, you know, small town hick, uneducated rube type dynamic. I don't think that's a fair deal. And also, I think some might have the impression that you might just be some local yokel running a small town paper. <laughs> reality is, is that you have a, a lot of experience in this domain, and this is not just a passion project for you. Can you give the audience a little run of your experience and background when it comes to journalism? Well, this is this is my retirement gig, sort of. I worked in Bloomington, Illinois, initially after getting out of college, and then at the Milwaukee Journal for close to 20 years, was a editor there, did most of the page one and Sunday section planning and, and other things of that nature then. Moved from there to teach for 26 years at the University of Illinois Teach Journalism. I was a tenured journalism professor there. Also started a an online site that became the home for American Journalism Re- Review magazine. Sold that eventually to try to get out of the dot-com bubble uh, <laughs> successfully. And I did. This was a paper that I went together with my father who had worked here for many years and was getting ready to retire. He'd run the place for more than 20 years and worked here for more than 40 years. We bought it together uh, back about 25 years ago, and uh, I was just an absent, silent partner sort of thing in it until after his death. Began assuming a little more responsibility for administrative stuff. Then I got stuck here in Kansas in during COVID and was teaching my classes from here, and I was at an age where I could retire and I didn't like teaching classes online particularly, and so I stayed here and just decided I would become the editor and publisher of the paper, and 
try to make a point out of it that we believe that there is a role for journalism. Journalism, a lot of newspapers have been bought up by chains that have, they sell the real estate, they cut the staff, they cut everything, and you have crappy newspapers, and then the crappy newspapers lose money. My, My contention is that if you produce a good newspaper, particularly in a community that still exists as a community, now, this might not work in a metropolitan area, but it works for a national publication. It works for a community publication that if you still have good quality journalism, good quality ad design, you help businesses, you can succeed. We have had rising circulation, rising ad revenue since I came back here before any of this ever started because we believe in expanding our staff. There's, there's neighboring larger cities all around us with daily newspapers were weekly. We have bigger news staff than all of them. We have a bigger news staff in some cases than two or three of them combined. Uh, yeah. And our staff, staff is not huge, which is to say their staffs are very small. Exactly. Yep. And I, you know, I used to work in the city of Sedgwick, which is about 40 minutes or so maybe away from Marion. And I also used to work in South Hutchinson, which has the Hutchinson newspaper. And you guys actually print your paper over the Hutchinson, I believe, newspaper and, facilities. And we, have a big, and we have a bigger news staff than they do. I was just going to get that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and for those who are listening who don't know, the city of Hutchinson is a population of about 40,000 people and Marion's a population of about 2,000 people to give you an idea of yeah. what uh, Eric's talking about there. I wanted to go over that background a little bit, Eric, because I want the audience to have a sense or understanding that you know what you're doing, you're competent in what you're doing, you're, you've been a practitioner as well as an academic teaching the profession and what have you. I think it's safe to say, without me knowing you, that you do a pretty good job of uh, covering your bases, dotting your I's, crossing your T's in terms of not only how you put your paper out, but how your reporters conduct themselves. Is that a fair assessment? I, I mean, I'd hope so. I, I was a nominee for a Pulitzer Prize for some stories I wrote in the past. So I didn't win, but you know, being nominated still is a big thing. Well, the reason why I bring that up, Eric, is because I do know from being in the region and I do have um, some personal interactions and relationships, not, not super close, but people who work for the city of Marion or on the governing body and what have you. And I know there's a reputation that you have been pretty aggressive and pretty hard hitting when it comes to uh, covering the city of Marion. And some people would say maybe a little bit unfairly or maybe a lot unfairly. And is that really a function of your professional expertise and maybe engaging in journalism in a way that a lot of local papers don't do nowadays? And so it just, it's, you know, it's sort of foreign to a lot of those folks, but it's not really you having an edge. It's more you just doing your job or, or, or do you have a little bit of an ax to grind? Oh, no, I don't have any ax to grind. Uh, not at all. I wouldn't be here if I had an ax to grind. I mean, the whole reason I came here is because I was born here and I care about this city and I want it to do better. What you have to understand, I just was talking to a Kansas City Star reporter. If you ask anybody in journalism, they will all say that they have been accused repeatedly of being negative, 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 And also they're constantly accused of fake news, fake news, fake news. Uh, fake news being news that I wished weren't true, but is. Uh, and, and so it's fake because belief, belief means truth uh, rather than facts meaning truth. It's pretty common and it has happened for many years. It is a little bit different these days because people equate the really bad news organizations that are left that are basically all they do is take what somebody sends them cut and paste and put it in their page and they're done with it. And so they don't, they shy completely away from anything that has any controversy to it. But you know, 
as I like to say, I even told students this when they were talking about doing their projects in the, in the computer lab at the university. I said, now go up to the kid next to you and student next to you. If I'd called them kids, they probably would have hanged me, but uh, uh, go up to the, the student next to you and look at their project and do it as if you were evaluating what they looked like going out on a big date. You want somebody to tell you you've got a piece of spinach stuck in your teeth. You don't want them to say, oh, you look wonderful. Everything's just great. People need to find when there is something that needs to be addressed. We operate under a premise, as I think almost all news organizations that are still valid do, that news is surprise. Things that are unexpected. What is unexpected becomes news. You know, that's why it's called new news. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> and uh, uh, so some of it's going to be negative. Some of it's going to be positive. To a, In a very perverse sort of way, you actually should be happy if there's more negative news than positive news, because it means that the bad things are surprising and the good things aren't that surprising. So good things are out there. Now, it's not to say we don't run good things. We run tons of good things. The, this week and last week, probably not so much because this story has overwhelmed everything else. But we do make an effort to do those kinds of things. And, and we made an effort this week's paper to, to put a back-to-school swimming party on the front page. But we didn't have much choice about, uh, you know, in addition to this story, we had the former police chief of Burns, which is in the county, being arrested on 13 counts of child exploitation. You know, right. there's not a way to make that good news. I mean, except for the fact that they arrested him. I mean, that's kind of good news if they caught him. Or ignore uh, it either. Um, yeah, if, if you ignore it, ignoring problems don't solve them. The first step in any problem solution is recognizing the problem. And that's the role of the newspaper. I want to dive into what brought us here. And this is the obviously the raid on your offices and in your home and whatnot. And I think it might be a good place to kind of start with explaining who the players are in the story. Um, we have the police chief, who's Gideon Cody. Now, he was just hired on, I believe, in May. Uh, so he's only been in town for a couple months. He's a first time police chief. He's never been in this role before. And he's coming out of Kansas City, Missouri, a different state where he worked for a major metropolitan uh, police department for about 25 years. Then we have uh, Judge Laura VR. Uh, she's the woman who signed off on the uh, probable cause affidavit for the search warrant, as I understand it. And then we have Marion County Attorney Joel Enzi. Now, this is an interesting character because he's related to Jeremy and Tammy Enzi. Who is bro- he's Jeremy's brother. Yeah. Jeremy's brother, right? And they're the owners of the hotel, which contains a restaurant called Chef's Table. Now, Chef's Table is the restaurant that is owned by Carrie Newell, who is basically the key figure which around this whole thing kind of revolves. Is that fair to yeah, say? This is a small town. You know, I mean, yes. Jeremy, their mother was a classmate of mine in high school, a class of 62 students. So, I mean, okay. it, it's going to be a small thing, uh, right. a small town. There right. are some other players that perhaps figure in this. We're only learning about a few of them as we okay. go along. And uh, then that brings but, us, th- that brings us to Carrie Newell. So Carrie Newell owns a couple of restaurants in town. One is the chef's table, which we just alluded to. And then the other one's called Carrie's Kitchen. Okay. It's a coffee shop across the street. Coffee shop. Okay, fair enough. 
going back to my timeline on August 1st is when this sort of thing kind of seems to start, but I don't know if that's true or not. So you are attending an event hosted at Carrie's Kitchen in which Congressman Jake LaTurner was addressing constituents and what have you. And various community members were there, including Chief uh, Cody, uh, City Administrator Brogan Jones, some local elected officials in the city and county, as well as yourself and your reporter, Phyllis Zorn. At some point during that meeting, Chief Cody, in his affidavit uh, for the probable cause of the search warrant, stated that Kerry Newell had asked uh, for you and Phyllis Zorn to be removed from the facility, and you guys basically left and went about your business. It was before the congressman arrived. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. And we left. I actually waited outside to speak to the congressman, and the congressman did come over and speak to us for about an hour after the gathering. So the reason for this being valid is probably because of what motivated what happened the next day, which was the next day, a person by the name of Pam Mogg, a retired dispatcher for the Marion County Sheriff's Department, who's married to a retired Kansas Highway Patrolman, was perturbed about our coverage of the fact that we'd been thrown out of the meeting and sent us uh, a copy of a letter that was, had been dated the day before that was sent to Carrie Newell stating that she could get her driver's license back if she paid a bunch of money and some other conditions uh, and agreed to have an ignition, an anti-drinking ignition interlock put in her vehicle. For a variety of reasons, we questioned whether this was a legitimate document. We asked Pam Mogg, well, first of all, simultaneous with giving us to this, she also gave the document to Ruth Herbal, the vice mayor. And I think it was because she was peeved at at what Carrie had done. I don't know. I don't know why she did it. But we did some additional work. We first of all wanted to establish, was this a legitimate document? So we asked where she'd obtained it. And after a lot of discussion through, we found out that it came from a public website, free, not there's, there's a There's two different websites here, one of which you have to pay for, and you have to acknowledge that you are who you say you are, and only the driver can do it, and so on and so forth. And then there's another one that's free. Now, you can't always see it because if you go in there, the form changes based on what information you've given to it. Uh, So if you give it the information of someone whose license has been suspended, it then has a section that allows you to download documents underneath it. And it also pre-fills the name of the person who you're downloading the documents from. This is where Carrie said that she had it. We looked at it. We didn't even print it. We didn't make a copy of it just to make sure that this actually was the document that she did. You know, these days she gave it to us as a picture. Right. On, on Facebook. I mean, <laughs> you can't yeah, you, exactly. you couldn't yep. tell whether it was legit. We didn't want to be, you know, in Dan Rather's position where he got a forged document and did anything. So the first thing we wanted to do is evaluate, was it a legit document? As we'd evaluated that, we determined that this really was a, a tit for tat exchange that Carrie was undergoing with her estranged husband. He is making it there have divorce proceedings underway. And he was arguing that he should keep custody of all their vehicles because he had a valid license and she she did. And she apparently was gradually working her way to try to clear up, not just this one drunken driving conviction from 2008, but I think there were a total of 10 license suspensions on her record. Well, Uh, not none of, them for, none of the rest of them for drunken driving. But we decided this is a divorce matter. We're not going to get involved in it. But we said at that point that there was a possibility that she might have gotten this because, you know, how did they know to check it? 
the day after it was written. She also made an allegation, which later was confirmed to us by... by you're, talking, Mog, you're talking Pam Mogg made an allegation. Pam Mogg made an allegation right. that the local police were ignoring this, uh, that they were fully aware that Carrie Newell was driving without a license and had for 14 years. Well, I want to come uh, back. To, I want to come back to that. Can I inter- interrupt you for a second, Eric? Yeah. So before we get, because uh, you kind of got a little he- bit ahead of me, I wanted to get back to you guys being ejected from Carrie Newell's restaurant. What precipitated that? Had you had a history of writing? God only negative- knows. God so only you, there, knows. There were no negatives. Carrie is an extremely volatile person who goes on. She, she's a Facebook troll. I will tell you honestly, I, I don't think she's important in this whole discussion. I think she's just a pawn in this. Situation. Okay. But you're saying that up until that point, you hadn't written any negative articles about Carrie or her businesses. She just basically no, said, No, we'd hey, written I- nothing but positive. <laughs> we'd written very positive. We'd, uh, another of our reporters, Deb Groover, had written several reviews that Deb and she were also very good friends. Wow. And they had okay. a fall, they had a falling out because Deb spoke too loudly on her cell phone in her restaurant and Deb ha- and Carrie had Deb thrown out of the restaurant because wow. of that. Okay. There's nothing there. Okay, so, so you get this document from Pam Mogg basically saying, hey, this is what's going on. And the reason why this is also kind of important or becomes an issue is because Carrie Newell needs a liquor license in order to operate her establishment, Chef's Table, correct? We didn't hadn't checked into anything about her liquor licenses at the time. Okay. We, we, we checked into what was going on with the divorce and decided that this is a divorce issue. We don't want to get involved in it. But there was this allegation that the police were ignoring it. And there was the possibility, because Pam Mogg kept saying, I've still got my contacts, uh, that this had come somehow through law enforcement. So as a result of that, we sent a note on August 4th to the sheriff and to the police chief. You sent this email to the chief and to the sheriff saying, hey, we got this information. We're concerned that it might have been obtained inappropriately. We're concerned about possible police misconduct. I, I think I wouldn't say that we were concerned. I said that we wanted to let you know that okay. this had come up so that if you wanted to do anything and if you wanted to do anything, we would be happy to, you know, provide you any information you wanted. They never at, they never, never responded to that note. Okay. Neither of them. So up until this point, when you send that email to the chief on Friday, the fourth, what, what was there any other interaction or conversation between anybody besides uh, Mog sending this information to anybody okay. in the community about it? Because that's where I get a little uh, Ruth, confused. Ruth Herbal, Ruth Herbal, the vice mayor, mm-hmm. sent a note to Brogan Jones, the city administrator, on that same day, Friday, saying, I got this in the mail from Pam Mog and said she probably got it from Carrie's estranged husband. And now that there was an agenda out for Monday's city council meeting, and on it was Pam uh, was Carrie Newell asking for the city to not grant but endorse an application that she was making for a caterer's liquor license. Okay, Ruth suggested that it might be appropriate since this that to have the chief check this out, have the police chief check it out. Brogan Jones apparently responded that. That isn't the part of wasn't the role of the city. That's the license is actually granted by the state. All the city is doing is verifying that she has a physical location somewhere and it's been inspected. Essentially, Ruth's and Ruth didn't send it to anybody else, or so she says. And I've found no one who got it from her. So, okay. so basically, we got it and we decided we weren't going to do anything with it. Ruth got it and 
Brogan decided he wasn't going to do anything with it. Although when Monday's meeting came forward, Ruth did vote against the license because she was concerned about it. Right. She didn't mention it in the meeting. She didn't mention the, the convictions in the meeting. Carrie did afterward. She came out and accused us of stealing the record, giving it to Ruth Herbel, and Ruth Herbel posting it to everybody on Facebook. Right. All right. three of those assertions are false. Carrie discussed after the meeting with me, she admitted to me that she knew that I didn't tell her it was Pam Mogg because at that time we were considering this still a confidential source. Pam has since said it was fine to give her name out. Carrie suggested to me that I know who gave it to you. Pam Mogg gave it to you. I said, then, then Carrie, why did you go to the council and say that we obtained it? And Ruth insisted that I, I hadn't didn't have Ruth's line to go on there, but Ruth didn't plaster it all over Facebook. We didn't give it to Ruth, and everybody admits that. What had happened, to the best of our ability to understand it, is that at some point on Monday morning, someone brought Carrie in. And Carrie, as I said, is a very volatile person. When you say Monday, you mean Monday the 7th? Monday the 7th. Okay. Brought Carrie in and got her all whipped up about this. My personal suspicion is that this involves the mayor, and here's why. If you really wanted to find out who got Carrie's document, wouldn't you have questioned Pam Mogg? She was questioned for the first time yesterday by the KBI. The police in Marion have never asked her a question. They didn't search her house. They didn't ask for permission to do it. They never asked her a question. Yet they knew in their probable cause affidavit that something had come from her. So if you're looking to say who stole this document, who stole this document, which by the way, the Kansas Department of Revenue has since said was not accessed illegally. It's there for the public to use and there's no, no crime was committed. So if they really were looking for this document and who got it, why didn't they talk to Pam Mogg? They didn't. That's a great question. They did talk. They did talk to Ruth Herbel, the vice mayor, who is a political adversary of the mayor. And, they, and the newspaper is a newspaper that the mayor doesn't like. Likewise, the police chief doesn't like us because we had damning information about him, which we hadn't published because we didn't have verified sources, but enough people have come forward. In fact, we just posted a new set of allegations a few minutes ago on our website that there's a lot in his history that should be explored. There was some mix-ups in how they checked his, his references. There were other things that went on, but he was aware he was about to be demoted by Kansas City. And we asked him, and it's one of the reasons he came to Marion, apparently. And we asked him about that before he took over as chief, and he threatened to sue us if we ever ran anything about it. That isn't why we didn't run it. We didn't run it because we didn't think we had it sourced well enough. Uh, we have run most of that since then because we've obtained additional sources. But we were literally inundated with phone calls by people who had previously worked with him about problems. But it's convenient that people who were essentially on the enemies list of the mayor and the police chief were the ones who were searched, and the people who weren't were not searched. It strikes me as bizarre that not only did Pam Mogg not get, have her house I guess, searched or whatnot, but none of the reporters had their homes searched either. It was limited to the no. office of the newspaper, your home, which you shared with your mother and the vice mayor. And, and if you read, very- if you read, if you read the at probable cause affidavit for the vice mayor, she's not accused of doing anything. 
So why would they search your house? It, it makes uh. it makes no sense. I mean, what is she guilty of? I mean, if, if she has a record that was obtained fraudulently or legally from somebody which, else, her having that record is not illegal. And she'd already sent it to him. Yeah, she sent exactly. it to the city administrator. Yeah. And when they searched these premises here, I'm sitting at my desk right now. To my left hand, sitting right on my desk, was a copy of the document that Pam Mogg had given us. My computer sits to my on my right hand. I can touch them both at the same time. They didn't take the the thing that was the document. They didn't take it. That wasn't what they were looking for. They because were looking you, to, you believe they were looking for what dirt you had on the chief, right? Is that fair to say? Or they you, were just looking to take our computers so they could make it difficult for us to publish and embarrass us and harass us. I think this is a classic example of, as I've said to somebody, it's schoolyard bullying. But schoolyard bullying that used the forces of government to do it, from the purposes of your podcast, the city administrator had already told him there wasn't going to be any follow-up by the police department. And last I checked, the city administrator is above the police chief. Well, that's an interesting dynamic because in Marion, uh, my understanding, he's a city administrator, and I don't believe he has hire and fire authority over the police chief. And I'm not sure what his disciplinary authority is over the police chief as well. In fact, you had an article. He doesn't. Uh, the mayor's the mayor's the only one who can suspend him, and the council's the only one who can fire him. Okay. Uh, but the mayor seemed a little confused about what his responsibilities were and tried to suggest that Brogan Jones was actually responsible for that at one point. In one oh, of there's been a lot of pointing and a lot of throwing people under the bus. What's interesting about this then uh, is that in the probable cause affidavit, Gideon Cody, Chief Cody, states to Brogan Jones that he believes an, inter- an internal, quote, internal investigation should be conducted. However, in the article that you wrote about where it's titled Mayor New Raid Was Coming, it talks about the police chief telling Mayor Mayfield that he was going to conduct a criminal investigation. And this is back on the 4th. So back on the 4th, it suggests that he's telling the mayor he's going to do a criminal investigation but on the 7th, he's talking to Jones ostensibly for the first time, according to the probable cause affidavit, and talking about an internal investigation only. Is that inconsistent, or am I, am I making something out of nothing there, or does that just seem uh, odd to you? Well, many, many things about the probable cause affidavit are, are inconsistent. That's why the county attorney came back and said, after KBI urged him to do so, I believe, said that there was insufficient grounds to seek a search warrant and withdrew the probable cause affidavit, withdrew the search warrant. The chief judge of the district withdrew the authority for that and ordered the return of all items seized. Yeah. Okay. So that, that was an, another interesting part of that too, is how does a prosecutor, the county the county attorney withdraw a search warrant's already been done. I, I thought that's only under the judge's purview that a judge could basically do that. Well, he re, he made a motion to do it, and the chief judge granted VR? that motion. You're talking, you're talking about VR? No, no, no. I'm talking about the chief judge of the district, well okay. over VR. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, VR, it, it's it's unusual that VR did this. Now, I realize they ro- judges rotate around. She is technically the district magistrate judge for Morris County which is northwest, northwest of here. Marion County has a district judge, not a magistrate, and Susan Robson. We don't know whether this was presented to Susan Robson and she refused to act on it or was not presented to him. We don't know whether there were additional search warrants requested and they were rejected. We have asked for that information and have been told that they will not release it. One of the things that was really baffling about the story as it was unfolding in real time was nobody saw the probable cause affidavit or even knew what the justification was. Even the county attorney didn't see it. 
the judge VR was she given this probable cause affidavit yes. before she signed? So it was. It, she was not, not only was given the probable cause affidavit; she is the notary public who notarized it. So how come it wasn't filed then with the court and wasn't available? I don't know. It wasn't filed until until the Monday after the search. Uh, apparently, that's possible. Okay, uh, and it's not terribly unusual that they orally do it. But it, she signed the other on the Friday before she signed it at eight something in the morning on that Friday, they conducted the raid at around 11 and then it was filed with the court at eight the following Monday. Now at that time, the County attorney Enzi said that he looked at it and found it insufficient, but he didn't announce that till Wednesday. Odd. Yes, it is. And what was odd was that that was after the KBI called him. Oh, well, maybe not, maybe, maybe not so odd. Right. <laughs> but here's the thing. It sounds like in this situation was the County, was County attorney Enzi not brought into the discussion by the chief in the judge when the, when the judge signed off on the warrant? We Do don't we know. know. We don't know. So we don't know. People will not answer that question. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a big question, right? Because I have done some research uh, prior to this interview and I've talked to some people I know and they said it's not uncommon per se for a county attorney to not be brought into the loop on a probable cause search warrant affidavit. However, it does seem extremely unusual in a situation where you're talking about raiding a newsroom. I mean, we're not where, where there is about- a, where there is an established procedure that for news organizations, you're supposed to issue a subpoena for the document and allow a hearing to be made. What happened was on Sunday or Monday, I'm not quite sure which after the raid occurred, our attorney contacted the director of the KBI and I think Mr. Mativi. Yes, Tony Mativi. And he may have been on vacation. <laughs> I don't know whether he cut his vacation short or what, but he assembled a group. He said that he was going to assemble a group of people. He was asking at that point that the material that was seized all be sequestered and no one be allowed to have access to it. They apparently agreed to this and they swear that they didn't have access. They didn't do anything with it. But uh, do you do you believe them? Because you you got the you got the materials back. We got we got the computers they, back. They, they are being they, they were sent off to be examined by a forensic expert to determine whether that was true. There's a footnote to this. I believe them, and I believe the under sheriff Larry Starkey is an honorable person who I believe if he says they didn't do it, and to the best of his knowledge, they didn't do it. The other interesting thing is that the search warrant you're supposed to list all the things that are seized, and you leave a copy of it. We got a copy, and it had a certain number of items on it. And then afterward, another item was added to it. They'd apparently tried to clone our hard drives. They tried to capture a clone of... Tried or did? Well, they did. Uh, Okay. (laughs) And they had that device added to the list after it had been signed and dated. And it was added on. We just found out about that earlier this week, and our attorney has now we believe worked out a deal uh, today that that drive will be given over to the custody of the court and a copy of it will be given to us so we know what it is. And there are multiple other copies of it that are floating around and that they will destroy all of those and do it under a court order, a joint order from our attorney and the county attorney that will be enforceable by contempt of court. 
In, in your heart of heart, do you truly believe that all that information will be destroyed or do you think that some stuff will get out and or has been kept by somebody or retained by anybody? If Larry Starkey says it's been, it's been destroyed and to his ability to control it, I'll believe it because Larry's a good guy. Okay. Uh, I don't know about all if I was if, if I were in your shoes, I'd be very skeptical. Well, I am. I am um, skeptical. But uh, the other thing, though, that's interesting is we pretty well know what they got. And we think we know what they got and we don't have anything to hide. But, but in all fairness, you were working on, I don't know what, what your sources were for the investigation of chief Cody, but, but you did work. They, you were doing a background check. They on cloned him. the, the way the, as, as it was described to us and we'll know when we get the data back, as it was described to us, the way they, the way they were searching, they wouldn't have found that. Okay. They, they, it was not on, it was not on the network that they were, looking for. So okay. they might've seen it on the desktop. They might've photographed it. So we're also looking for the photographs they took. That was one of the things that my mother was very upset about was that my bank statement, my personal bank statement was lying there. And she said they appeared to photograph it. I'm a little worried about that. Yeah. It's, <laughs> the, the greater possibility for identity theft exists in what they did to us than what we ever did with Carrie Newell. I want to get back to this probable cause affidavit because I think there's a lot of stuff that needs to be fleshed out with this one point. And the key thrust of this whole thing was that identity theft and fraudulent use of a computer and illegal access to a public database to get private or confidential information, yada, 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 right? And I know that in Kansas, there's probably three there might be more than three, but I know of at least three ways where information about a person's driving history or driver's license status can be can be discovered or found. Yeah. One is gonna one is gonna be with police officers who can access their moto, their mobile data terminals and punch in someone's name and then get a record. And that's very serious business because if they get that if they use that um, that resource improperly. Uh, you can lose your job. You can get fired. You can lose your certification. In fact, it happens all the time throughout the country, uh, oftentimes in uh, civil uh, relationship type situations where an officer might be checking on an ex-girlfriend yeah. or a lover or something like that. So that was the first thing I thought of when I first started about this whole case. The second thing is that there are two uh, avenues, two public portals on the Kansas Department of Revenue website where you can go and access driver's license or driver's record data. And I went down both of those rabbit holes just to see what I would what I would discover. In the probable cause affidavit, there is a, a, a that talks about one of the portals and gives a list of items from A to M on what are the legal reasons or the valid reasons for to access this data and this information. That's the sixteen. Also, that's the one that charges you sixteen dollars. And yes, that yes, is not yes, the so, one we used. We used the other one that doesn't charge you anything uh, and also pre-fills portions of the, the request for you. But it only does it if you go in there with, the, this is what confused us all, because we'd go in there and test it and say, but that, all those lines aren't there. It only does, they only appear on the form if somebody's got a problem with their license. So if you check your license, unless you unless you're suspended, it doesn't show up. We finally got that all figured out. And there's also some elements of it that pre-fill the name and pre-fill the address and, and other things based on what you've already supplied. It's not probably the best form. And the warning on it says that, do you hereby swear that you're going to do this in conformance to the provisions of something or other section C? There is no such die. <laughs> okay. That, that used, it well, used there, to be section C, but they revised it and it doesn't even exist anymore. So in the probable cause affidavit, then how do you have a quote 
unquote investigation to get any information to basically put into the probable cause affidavit that you can have grounds for the search, right? I mean, well, why the, the, the biggest question is why didn't you pick up the phone and ask us or ask Ruth Herbel? Uh, either one of us, we would have told you everything you wanted to know, and they didn't do it. So why didn't they do it? Why didn't they pick up the document? Why didn't they talk to Pam Mogg? Because this was a convenient way to get somebody. That's my personal theory. Now, I can't prove it, but... Well, let's flesh that out a little bit more, right? Because and if you were the police chief and you have a probable cause affidavit where you state that you were in touch with the Kansas Department of Revenue, why didn't you go one step further and ask the Kansas Department of Revenue for search history on these terms, for ISP data, whatever the case may be? And how about asking the state itself ahead of time whether or not the search was legal or illegal, because it seems pretty silly to have a probable cause affidavit where you say this is an identity theft crime, and then you have a KDOR representative come out on August 21st or so and say, no, this was a legal search. I mean, that's that's a pretty embarrassing thing. Our, our reporter actually had trouble using the form and called KDOR and got instructions on the phone of how to use it. <laughs> That's when she supposedly stole it was after getting instructions from, from their helpline. This is malicious. There's, there's just not any, there's no way around it. You can't come up with any scenario where this makes sense other than it's malicious. Well, something else that's bothered me about this whole situation, Eric, is was there ever a criminal report or police report filed? Did Carrie ever go into the police department and file a report? Because what precipitated this actual investigation? I don't know. Now, those such reports, offense reports, are supposed to be open public records. They're printed on them that page one of this is an open yes, public record. exactly. We've had difficulty with the police chief getting those copies in the past. We used to get a weekly briefing from the, from the police chief about activities that they've done. We get it from the Hillsborough police, which is right next right. door, and they always put the, act, the reports behind it, and they used to. For 60 years, they used to do this in Marion, and when the police chief arrived, he eliminated doing it. The little narrative thing that they used to write didn't ever mention any person's name or any specific location. It was Police found a dog running free in the 700 block of South 4th Street, and it was returned to its owner. And not even a 19-year-old male, you know, something like it was, there was, but he refused to do it, saying it violated privacy rules. So as, of, um, but so as of this moment, though, do you even know if Carrie Newell or any, well, Carrie Newell, Newell is supposedly the victim of identity theft. Did she actually file a police report to start a criminal investigation? Or was this self-initiated by the No, she talked to chief? a lawyer. She talked to a lawyer. What I, what I think happened was that the chief told her about all this and whipped her up into a, a rage of fury because you can do that with Carrie. You can, you can get her mad at something. And knowing that she would attack us and attack the vice mayor. And, and actually, she told me Monday night after the council meeting that she wasn't interested in us. She wanted to get the vice mayor. Yeah. That's who she really wanted to get. And okay. she wanted to get somebody. I mean, that's, I, I, I tried to, I tried to tell her at the time, then she, she misquoted that when she went back in the probable cause. I said, Carrie, you know, we weren't going to run this. We weren't going to say anything about it. Ruth Herbal just gave it to the city administrator and he decided there wasn't going to be anything about it. The only way this is ever going to come out is by you standing up and yelling about it like you did at this meeting. We were protecting you. 
in, in that regard. It's, it's a private matter, and, and I don't think the public had a great interest in it. Uh, I do think it's a little weird that we've got a restaurant. Now, we started looking into the restaurant license. She actually doesn't have a liquor license. The license was issued in the name of Tammy, right? The, Tammy Enzi. Of Tammy Enzi. Same thing with her restaurant license. And as I understand it, those licenses are not transferable. And this, it, also, and this, it also expires this week. Right. Uh, and the, if it has to be renewed by the city council, there are no meetings of the city council this coming week. Next meeting is in September. But the, uh, the restaurant ownership transferred, I think, back in February-ish, right? February, Something like that? February yeah. 1st. And less, unless it didn't really transfer. Okay. Unless she's still actually working for the Elgin. I don't know. I mean, I've never seen a contract of sale. They announced that it was sold. Maybe it wasn't. So I want, to, I want to put a fine point on this, Eric, though. So as far as you know, there is no police report or complaint filed by Carrie Newell that you've been able to get a, a copy of. or Not that we have seen. Of, Not that we have seen. Which seems pretty suspicious to me. Like, I think I, 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 it seemed a little, little odd for a police chief to initiate an investigation on identity theft without having a victim who has filed a report. And it all seems very odd. And yes. The only, the only way it makes sense is if it's an abuse of power to, to bully somebody. But and and that puts from your perspective, from the perspective of your audience, that puts your city administrator right in the middle of something. <laughs> well, yeah, and let's kind of dig in that a little bit more because you alluded to it earlier, and I wanted to get back to it. So the, there were rumors and allegations that Carrie Newell was driving around without a license for about fifteen years, but it's even beyond that because, according to your reporting, she admitted on her own Facebook post that she was driving without a license, correct, for about fifteen years. Yeah, she and she later removed the post, but she did have it there. We do have a screenshot of it, and she more or less said, "But I had to because I have kids." Uh, and and she, when talked to about the fact that she doesn't really have a restaurant, but I'm getting one for the, and she was, and she was getting her driver's license too. So she's just, so from August of 2008 to August 8th of 2023, she's driving around without a license 15 years or so in this community. Uh, We've got police, a former deputy sheriff and Marion police officer who says, yeah, everybody was fully aware of it. But no and one the, was. Pl- and Pam Mogg, the former dispatcher, says everybody was fully aware of it. And the answer that we said, well, why didn't you do anything? Because she's such a, he used the B word at that point, and they didn't want to deal with it. They want to deal with the blowback or the house of her being irate or yeah. upset. She was running, among other things, she was one of the co operators of a Facebook page called Marion Crime, which. Even though she's violating the law every day. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. No, this, is, this is this is this is small town stuff, but I I honestly don't think that Carrie's I think Carrie's just nothing more than a pawn. Somebody saw somebody saw this and saw here's a good excuse that we can do something. I understand that point for sure that you're making, but I guess the to me as a city administrator, I would find it very disconcerting. And I'm not you know Brogan just showed up on May first or so. He's only been there for a couple months, so I'm not trying to dump this on him, but. I would be very concerned if I found out that my police officers were knowingly allowing individuals to violate the law and not do anything about well, it. Let's go back and think about that just a minute. Brogan just showed up the day after they hired the police chief. So we had, we had a sudden vacancy. We had a vacancy of a city administrator, the city clerk, and the city police chief. Now, I would tend to think that the first person you would hire would be the city administrator. So that that person could then go out and find a city clerk, find a police chief, do all the work of, of 
vetting them and checking their references. They did it in reverse order. And I can tell you as a city manager, I would like to have my option of picking my department heads. And I think most city managers would agree with that as well. Yeah. And I mean, this is not, this is not limited to city managers. This is, you know, you hire the general manager and he hires the head coach. You know, you hire the athletic director and he hires the head coach. It's just standard procedure. Why did we do it differently? Well, you tend to be loyal to the person who hires you. And if you get hired essentially by the mayor, you're loyal to the mayor. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think that if Brogan had been the city administrator and we would have had somebody who would have done a full reference check on Gideon Cody, it is obvious that we did not. A city council member did a very limited reference check, even lied to us. I say that point blank. We asked whether you've, have you seen his jacket? Oh, yes, I've seen it. Well, we called Kansas City PD. They hadn't made it available to him. It was two days later that he looked at it. And then he looked at it and asked only for certain things out of the jacket. There was a pending complaint against Gideon Cody, and he didn't want anything that hadn't been decided. So the pending complaint that he was going to be demoted, why would you go from a job that's paying you $115,000 a year? To a job that pays sixty, right? pays sixty. Yeah. When you're one year away from retirement. You know, I mean, it doesn't make sense. There's something there. And the fact that we rushed this appointment through, we had to get him hired right before we hired the city administrator. I feel sorry for Brogan. Then Brogan tried to stop the investigation, and apparently the mayor overruled him. Do you think Brogan was informed ahead of time about the search warrant and the criminal investigation, or do you think he was completely out of the loop? I don't know. I don't know. And I will say this as advice to people around here. Brogan is a first-year city administrator. This is all over the internet. Brogan, you know, next job he goes to, they're going to find his name plastered all over everywhere about this story. He can either go along with it, in which case he'll probably never get hired, or he can be a hero and, and say what he knows. But right now, he's not saying anything. If I, I've threatened to go over and walk into his office and say, you know, for your own sake, it would be good for you to explain what you know and when you knew it. Because I, I, at least what we've seen on the record is he had a moderate answer. I, I thought his answer that was in, this, in the, the probable cause affidavit was the right answer. The, tell Ruth that the, the state's the one that looks into whether, the, whether her license is right. And we'd already passed on it. And why are we going to do the rest of this? But there are other things that are going on here in Marion that, that actually worry me even more. The way that we're proceeding with the budget. There have been no hearings. I mean, for, for those of you out there who are city administrators or city managers, there was a statement that went through under Kansas Revenue Neutral Act. You had to, by July 20th, say whether you're going to exceed the revenue neutral rate and what your specific tax rate would be. So they not only exceeded the revenue neutral rate, they went up a couple of mills above that. Council never voted on that number. There was never a vote of the council. We're looking back at the budget that was laid on their desks on August 7th. They didn't discuss it. It was just handed to them. Here's the budget. And that's the budget that was published in our newspaper this week for the hearing. And we've already been told there's been changes made to it. The police department, which has existed for half a year with three of its five positions unfilled, the current year expenditures for it were expected to rise by $100,000 over last year. It doesn't make sense. There are major initiatives in other areas that are massive increases of the budget in those particular areas. Council's never voted on them. 
there's an area the planning and zoning commission wanted to hire an attorney to come in and redo its master plan and it had $35,000 in the budget last year and it says that its estimated current year expenditures are 5,000 and the council has never taken that money away who took the money away i don't believe the city administrator has that authority i don't and i don't think somebody who's brand new to the job who just got out of college just graduated in May from the training program at Wichita State. I don't think he'd do that on his own. I don't know. Maybe he did. So at Monday night's meeting, Ruth Herbel tried to ask some questions. And the only reason she could do that was because David Mayfield couldn't be at the meeting, which is kind of convenient. He arrived an hour after the meeting was over. This was the meeting at which they put a notice on the agenda that there would be no discussion of the current case followed by 47 exclamation points in red at the whole outset of this this raid on your office and the search warrant at your home and all that stuff there's been some confusion or some arguments made that hey just because you're a reporter just because you're a newspaper you're not above the law in fact of course not right so in fact tony (laughs) tony mativi said something to that effect correct tony mativi basically said that no one is above the law whether the whether a public official or a representative of the media and when this story first broke, there was a lot of stuff about how this is a violation of the First Amendment and the Federal Privacy Protection Act and so forth and so on. I wanted to ask you before we pivot this conversation, Eric, are there ever legitimate grounds and under, if so, what would they be in order for a, a police department to raid a newspaper newsroom? Well, legally, they're, they're supposed to issue subpoenas. In 100% uh, of the cases? Is there well, ever- a- not 100%. I mean, if, if I- if I were to walk out, there's a bank next door to us, and I steal the money from the bank, and I run back into the newsroom. I think they could they could search the newsroom for me. Gotcha. Uh, I, I think that's perfectly fine. But to go for documents that are obtained in the process of reporting, particularly for things that had not been reported, we didn't do anything. The law, if there's got to be criminal intent, we didn't intend to do it. We didn't intend to steal her identity. We didn't. Right. We didn't publish anything. We didn't. There's no criminal intent. I, the first day I was on the job in Bloomington, Illinois, watch commander, I was covering the police beat. This is 1975. So it shows you a little how, how much bullying there was back those days. But I'd finished writing all my stuff down, took my notebook and folded it up. And the watch commander, a guy by the name of Beverly Bradshaw, and you never called him Beverly, you called him Red. So Red Bradshaw calls me over and says, I'm going to, son, I'm going to give you a lesson in police procedures here. Give me your notebook. And he took my notebook and he then proceeded to just tear every page out and tear it up into shreds. He says, now, if I had intended to destroy your notebook, I would be guilty of criminal damage to property. But I was actually teaching you the meaning of criminal intent, mens rea. So as, as such, I have committed no crime. Here's your notebook back and hands me all these shreds. In those days, that was often the relationship between police and reporters. He does have a point. You know, you got to have criminal intent to break the law. If you break the law without, without there being any criminal intent, it's not breaking the law. And there never was any. And one would think that a 25-year police veteran would know that. Now, whether a brand new rookie magistrate judge knew it, 
I don't know, but I'd sure hope so, because she's the one who's supposed to protect us against things like that. You know, it's interesting. I would say this. I do think there's often a misconception with governing bodies and especially in small towns, this belief or perception that just because a police officer served in a large police department, that somehow they are competent or capable of being a police chief. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is that in large organizations like the Kansas City, um, Missouri Police Department or what have you, they are often pigeonholed or, you know, their specialized niches of what their focus yeah, is on. I mean, I, I will tell you, it works the same way in the newspaper business. There are, there are, when I worked at the Milwaukee Journal, we had a newsroom of 350 people. Not all 350 of them were really great journalists. I mean, there, there were some of them who, who were kind of hanging on. They can hide out in a big organization, but uh, it's a little harder to hide out in a small environment. But uh, the big thing is now we've got all this and everything's, everything's now secret. And for anybody out there, I mean, this is lesson one in public relations. The more you tell somebody you, we can't tell you something in journalism, the more they're going to want to find it. You're ringing I mean, the bell, right? It's, you're chumming you're, the waters. You're, 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 you're chumming the waters. You're red, raising the red cape. You're doing everything. Neighboring City Hillsboro, very open with us about everything. Send us all the stuff, cooperate all the time. And the result is we have great relations with them. We all respect each other and understand we all have jobs to do. And let's not make it difficult for each other to do our jobs. When it gets adversarial, it's bad. What is your recommendation other than just the generic transparency, right? And honesty, but what, what is your recommendation for how a small town city manager or any city manager should interact with the media? It's not just with the media, it's with their own, their own council. One of the things that I would initially recommend is don't ever put something on the agenda and expect action that night, that first night, put it on, talk about it, let them think about it, let other people hear about it through news reports, let them have their say and then act upon it the next week. And don't try to line all the ducks up in a row and then give it to them on the second reading. I mean, it takes, granted, if there's something that comes up on Friday and you got to act on it by Monday, yes, you do that. But most things, there's a long period of planning. And watching Hillsboro, the neighboring town, do this, they do this regularly. They, they sit around. It's just there's some, there's some symbolism, too. The Marion City Council sits up on a dais. They all sit in the front of the room and they have nameplates and they look down on the crowd. The Hillsborough City Council has a little conference table and they all gather around the conference table and they're working together. And they'll bring up and said, well, we're thinking about we need to do this. And then you'll hear them. They all have they all chip in some ideas. And there's some ideas that I'm sure that people hadn't thought about. Uh, and then they say, okay, well, we'll put all that together and we'll come back next meeting with a proposal that you can act on. I think that opens it up for the media because now we're able to see what's going on. It opens it up for the council member. It opens it up for the public. So the more open you can be with your council, with the media, with everything else, now I'm not saying tell them every secret in the world. Do you honestly and sincerely believe that your coverage of Marion and your coverage of Hillsborough, which are literally next door neighbors, is it the same? Are you treating them the same? Or do you we, actually? We probably spend more attention to Marion because we're located here, but we cover both of them. We send reporters to both their meetings each week. But do you think you cover? Do you cover Hillsboro with the same vigor, I would say, I guess, or the same aggression or assertiveness or whatever word you want to use? Because like I said, it kind of goes back to the beginning of the conversation where there's a perception that you guys are pretty aggressive when it comes to Marion. Do you think you're, you're fair to both? Hillsboro did their budget right. Marion didn't. So which one are we going to cover more? 
You know, what are we supposed to say? And, and Hillsborough talked, the city administrator in Hillsborough made an announcement like four weeks ago. We're going to talk about the budget every meeting between now and the budget hearing. And they do. Marion, they haven't talked about it once. Never been on the agenda. So, yeah, we're going to cover Marion more because they're doing it wrong compared to Hillsborough. Uh, does that mean that we're aggressively going after Marion? Well, you pay more attention to the, you know, if you've got two kids and one of them's behaving perfectly and the other one's not, you're going to pay more attention to the ones not behaving. It's just the way it goes. What would you like to see happen at this point? Do, would you, do you think the chief should be fired or put on leave? Or what are your thoughts on the chief at this point? He sure should at least be put on suspension now. I mean, you can suspend somebody with pay and that's no penalty to him. He doesn't work. I mean, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't patrol. He, he always has another officer on at the same time he's on so that he doesn't really leave the office. So they, aren't, they wouldn't lose anything if he were to go on suspension. It would be a good standard, but the mayor will not do that until the KBI finishes its investigation. I think he should go on suspension. I think he should never have been hired, just to be honest with you, from what we've learned about him. And there's new, new allegations coming up today. We just posted on our website. And you believe in your heart of hearts that this whole ordeal, this whole situation was motivated by Chief uh, Cody's... I don't know that it was solely Chief Cody. I think I, I can't prove it, but my personal opinion is that it was Mayor David Mayfield as well. I mean, he's a former highway patrolman too, so this is there, there's a law enforcement angle to this. How do you feel about the city administrator in this cons, uh, situation? You've you've been pretty complimentary towards him, but you have some questions. Do you how do you do you think it's time for him to be looked at or removed from office? Or what, what are your thoughts on on that situation? I don't know. I mean, he's only been here a couple of months. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. I mean, the, the, he has some good points. He has some bad points. But I think it's it's interesting how, from the perspective of your listserv, how a city administrator can become very tied to a mayor who is a strong mayor, who's, who's a mayor asserting his executive power rather than just being the presiding officer over the council. Honestly, what I would like to see happen is Marion to abandon the mayor council form of government and go back to a commission, which has the advantage of having a public affair, public works commissioner and a finance commissioner and a mayor slash police commissioner, each of whom has specific responsibilities for specific areas and therefore would be more engaged in their work. Right now, I think the city council is little more than a student council in a high school that is directed, whether it's directed by the administrator or by the mayor, or by the mayor and one council member, or even possibly the future mayor. I don't know. We don't know who's directing. I don't think you're going to get a lot of support from city managers listening to my podcast. You want to go to a commission form. We generally prefer the council manager form of government. So, well, I'm 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 not I'm not necessarily against city administrators. I think they're fine as in terms of doing things, if they really are doing things. But if we've got a mayor and a city administrator, both of whom are fighting over executive control of the city, that, that's one too many. I mean, <laughs> it does create issues. Not a lot of city managers like the strong form, of, strong mayor form of government either. Uh, that's for sure. Well, and Marion has a unique form of government, which actually they've so screwed up their charter ordinances. I, I by the way, am a great believer that lo the local rule, home rule, Charter ordinances ought to be outlawed. Most of it screws up. They screw up a great deal of times. The, they, the charter ordinances in Marion, if you read them through, they forgot to put in that the mayor can vote on the city council. 
They never had an election to go to a mayor council form of government. They technically are a commissioner form of government that has home ruled and renamed its commission a council and given a mayor who is modeled after the presiding officer mayor, the weak mayor, but gave him executive powers. It's the strangest amalgam of things that doesn't match anything. And I've been arguing for some time that some of these problems are going to continue until that situation is addressed. How does this whole thing shake out, uh, Eric? You live in you live in Marion. Yeah, I moved back there. I was born yeah. here. Yeah. How does this whole thing? <laughs> how does how does this whole thing shake out? How do you see this moving forward? I don't want to put you on the spot, but I would imagine you're going to be filing a wrongful death lawsuit on your mother's passing. We don't know. We're we're going to be filing a federal lawsuit against the search, which okay. is essentially well, it's now been determined it was an illegal search. So we're going to file on that. I don't know whether I'm going to do it on my mother or not, but uh, I I don't want to. I don't want to do either of these things because I don't want to create negative publicity for Marion, Kansas. I came here because I like Marion, Kansas. I want to work to make Marion, Kansas better. I'm afraid that Marion, Kansas has become the joke of the universe right now. We're corrupt government. We're whatever else. And we need to get past that. But Is it a corrupt government? To- in the sense of are people putting things in their pocket? No. In the sense of what's the point of having a city council if it doesn't make any decisions? If all the decisions are being made by someone else. Who are making those decisions? You mean the mayor? Or? No. We don't know. We don't know. I mean, who, who came up with the budget? Who came up with all these numbers that are in the budget that don't that the current year expenditures don't even match what the state said were supposed to be the current year expenditures, and there were no rescissions ordered by the council? Who did that? We don't know. We can't get an answer. People need to have answers to these questions. They need government needs to be accountable. So does that kind of get back to the crux of lack of transparency, whether or not there's corruption or not, the lack of transparency causes one to wonder if there's corruption at times. Right. And that's why one of the reasons well, why it's it's one, so it, you wonder why, why we even bother having city council meetings. They don't do anything. And most of the time it's, it, it says it's become like a student council in high school. I was on the student council in high school. Probably half the people on this group were on the student council in high school at some time. And, you know, you did nothing. You had no reasonable input over the city. Now, if you're going to hire a city, first of all, if you're going to hire a city manager versus a city administrator, there's a difference too. And a manager, you give a little more power to An administrator, you don't. Um, I, I think that something needs to be clarified about the governing rules of the city. And then we need to get people in. You know, the city administrators were going around, now not this city administrator, but a previous one, was recruiting people to run for city council. I don't think that's right, but it sure as heck happened. And not only did it happen, it happened openly. He was talking about, I talked to him about it at the time and we need to recruit. I tried to reach out to this person and I reached out to this person. One of the other problems, this is the first time since 2004 that the city of Marion has hired somebody who was trained as a city administrator. We have gone through a progression of, first it was the current mayor was the city administrator. He'd been the police chief. Then we had, after him, we had a guy who'd been the economic development director. Then after him, we had another guy who'd been the economic development director. And that brings us, and then we had a guy who they brought in who had a history of lasting six months and then using golden parachutes and leaving. And he left in December and that's where Brogan is. So for the past 12 months, we've had half the time there hasn't been a city administrator and the other half the time we've had for the first time in more than 20 years, 
somebody who's actually an experienced city administrator or trained as one. Trained, yeah, uh, not experienced, yeah. But so I, I know we're getting a little long here, and I'm, I probably should let you go, Eric. But I do. I want to wrap up maybe with this question. You live in the city of Marion. What is what does justice look like for you? Because you know you go uh, on a lawsuit route. It's going to cost the taxpayers money. It's going to cost you money. I mean, you live in that community, obviously. You've lost a family member. You believe you're the victim of a of a witch hunt because of a an out of control police chief. I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth there. If I am, please correct me. Uh, what is justice for you in this situation? Justice for me isn't justice for me because my motivation in doing this has nothing to do with me. From my perspective, we got our stuff back. We're back publishing newspapers. We're fine. I mean, I don't like it. They ought to apologize for it. I, I'm not going to try to get a pound of flesh out of the out of them. On the other hand, we need to set a precedent for the rest of the country. We need to set a precedent that this is just something you don't do. You think about it first. You study it first. Maybe you need to search a newsroom. I don't know. But gee, I always thought that a search warrant was a last resort. You couldn't get something from somebody, so you demand to search their premises for it. We would have given it to them. We would have given them everything. We did give everything to them. We didn't it was it was used maliciously. My financial wherewithal doesn't depend on this newspaper. I bought this, and I, when I bought it, I, the money that I put into the newspaper, I said to myself, I'm never getting it back. Never expected to. So I, if it goes off the face of the planet, I, I've already written that off my books. I don't get a salary. I will participate if we make a profit. We give employee bonuses at the end of the year. I will take part of that. But I don't get a salary. I don't get a paycheck. This is not my livelihood. But there are a lot of papers that that's true of. Right. And they they can be intimidated a lot more easily than we can. And a big suit and a big settlement would help protect them. And that's kind of who I'm worried about right now. Well, that's the crux of the issue, right? Because in this country, it seems the, the only way you really set a message or to change behavior is by inflicting financial damages on somebody. Yeah. And unfortunately, unfortunately that, yeah. And I hope that it doesn't wreck the city of Marion. I assume that they have insurance that will cover some of this. I don't know. It doesn't really matter at that point. We were fortunate to have insurance that would help pay for our attorneys. Not a lot of newspapers do. So, in fact, the, I was talking to the insurance company today. Yeah, we have this in our policy. We've had it for years and years and years. We've never used it. Nobody's ever come to us with a claim under this provision in our policy. You're the first. They aren't quite sure how to deal with it, but it is there. And yeah. so it makes me wonder as a city, as a city manager, what impact this is going to have on the city's ability to get insurance or their premiums and what have you too. There's or to attract people. Out. There are people sitting around here saying, God, it looks like they have the Keystone cops down there. You know, I mean, it's, it's a shame how easily you can be tarred by something like that. And that certainly, why would I do that? Why would I? Why would a newspaper, which is basically exists to serve its own community, why would it work against its own community? It wouldn't. It'd be stupid. You've had a crazy two weeks. We're recording this on Friday the 25th. So literally two weeks ago, this is when this whole thing went down as far as your office is being raided. Just, just to wrap up this interview, can you just encapsulate what this whole experience has been on an emotional level? You know, honestly, it's been so busy. I haven't had time to process any of that. And and some some extent, that's a blessing because I, I haven't really processed the fact of my mother's death. I, it's been such a whirlwind of different things going on that uh, I really don't have a chance to, 
I don't have those, you know, 30 minutes to sit down in the dark by myself and think about it. Uh, if I have 30 minutes to sit down in the dark to think about it, I'm going to fall asleep because I haven't had any sleep recently. Uh, but uh, so I, it, it's, it, it, I, I'm proud of our staff. I'm proud of, I'm proud of the, I'm proud of the fact that people all over this world have come to our aid. You know, we've, we've got something like 5,000 new subscriptions. Our press run before this happened was 4,000. We have people writing in to us, the, the ultra conservatives, the ultra liberals. And I mean, in like, in the, I'll bet you that the, the, that police chief's a Democrat. And I'll bet you that police chief's a Republican. You know I mean? They all, but they all agree that it was wrong. And they, right. they, 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 they grant every conspiracy theory you've ever imagined, but they're all united. And there are so few issues in this world these days that unite the left, the right, the center, everybody. We're hearing from France from just this morning, France, Netherlands, Switzerland. Somebody called from Switzerland to subscribe to the paper. We've had people drive in. Somebody drove up from Austin, Texas, uh, somebody uh, to get a picture with me. It's been a whirlwind uh, deal for you. And I can only imagine how many interviews and how many time you've been spending on calls. And I appreciate you, uh, Sending, you know, spending your time with me today as we go over this, I'll, I'll be. I like to be very transparent with my audience and my guests. And you know, a minute ago, you talked about how this has been a unifying uh, situation. I'm right of center politically. I, I don't have any problems saying that. And I'm also a person who tends to have a healthy degree of skepticism when it comes to mainstream media. And I will tell you that when I saw the story, I was immediately shocked by the brazenness of it and just sort of the out of touch tone deafness. How the hell do you think you're going to raid a newsroom or shut down a newspaper and think there's not going to be blowback? It just seemed like amateur hour uh, with respect to your, your police chief over there and waiting for developments to come out. And I'm looking at it and, you know, your, your police chief puts a quote or, or statement out on Facebook and hints that there's something really more significant to the story. Like there's a smoking gun. <laughs> and then I get my hands on the probable cause affidavit and there's literally nothing here. I mean, what, I just, it boggles my mind that this could have even happened in this country and that somebody would even think that this was acceptable or they could get away with it. And I mean, yeah, we're, not talking, we're not talking about a serious major crime. We're not talking about uh, finding a source to a, a, an assassination or of, a, of, a, of an elect official or of a diplomat. This is a ridiculous situation. And I, I can't even fathom who thought in the right mind it was acceptable to go in and raid a newspaper under the guise of these arguments. It's just I don't get it. It's like it's it's like sending a SWAT team to arrest a jaywalker, only to find out that he was actually in the crosswalk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one that I the one that I really feel sorry for though is our vice mayor who got caught up in all this, and she doesn't have, you know, the First Amendment to wrap herself or to wrap around herself. She got just as inconvenienced. She has an eighty-eight year old husband who has dementia, who is very concerned, was very upset about this, like my ninety-eight year old mother, and. She doesn't really have the same degree of, you know, people are not concerned. She was rated the same time we were. She yeah. was rated the same way we were. And in fact, all she did was, gee, there's going to be a liquor license on our agenda. And there's this person that may have had a drinking problem and maybe the police should check it out. That's all she did. I'm not a city employee, although I spent 26 years at the University of Illinois, so I have been a government employee. Uh, but I sure would think twice before, you know, she's one of my bosses if I'm a city employee. <laughs> have you received any official communication, any apology from 
anybody related to the city with regard to this nope. episode? <laughs> Nothing. Nope. Not a word. Okay. Well, hey, Eric, you've uh, you've given me some of your time this afternoon. I know you're incredibly busy, and I thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. My name is Joe Turner. I'm the host of City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. Until next time, catch you later. Bye.